Okay. I am going to give you a sneak peek. A sneak peek of what goes on when someone who doesn't preach very often has to preach. Okay, my name is Bristol Hopkins. I preach a few times a year in here. I'm getting more used to it, but I still don't like have my method, you know. Um, but one thing that I do like to do is I, I've, I like to know what I'm going to preach on well in advance because I kind of like to just muse on it and see what the Lord left. So like two months ago, sometime before Lent, I got out our little spreadsheet of teachers and what scripture they were going to read or what we were going to teach on. And I saw that I was going to teach on Paul and Silas in prison and how they praised in the night and the walls came down. And, and I was like, oh, this is good because I love this story. Because if, if you don't know this about me, I am a worshiper. I love to worship. I know that Worship changes the atmosphere, that it's powerful. And you might also know that that is what Phil preached on last week. Because I read the spreadsheet wrong. And when I followed the line across, I thought I was preaching on that. So for like two months, I was like thinking about all the awesome stuff that I could share and the testimony I could give about praising at midnight, just like Phil did last week. And he did a great job, let me say. Well, fast forward, Lent is over, and our kind of third section of Acts, we're going through the book of Acts this year, and we're kind of in our third section, and I'm on the teaching team for this third section. So we're getting ready to have our meetings, and I get the spreadsheet out again, and I was like, what? What? Acts 17, that's not what I was going to preach on. So go to the teaching meeting, and I tell Phil, hey, if, if you need any material, I could offer you some. And he said, well, do you want to preach? And I said, I have four kids, and it's tulip time weekend. No, I don't want to preach. Um, so... Um, so my method had to change a little bit about how I go about doing this. So I did the only thing I knew how to do. And I said, Lord, what do you want to say? And I don't know if you know this method of scripture study, but it's called Lectio Divina. And part of what that is is you pick a scripture and you just read through it and you kind of see what lifts for you. Um, and so I did that. And before we talk about what lifted for me and what I believe the Lord has for us this morning, I want to read through it, and I want you to ask that question. Because the truth is that this passage, Acts 17, has so much in it. And I want to make sure that if there's something different than what lifted for me, that lifts for you, I want you to go back and ask the Lord about that when we're finished here. We're going to kind of go down the path that I believe he has us on corporately this morning, what lifted for me and what I think he wants me to share, but I think there's so much in here that I don't want you to miss something else that he might have for you. So if you want to open your Bibles to Acts 17, 
Um, there are some on the cart in the back. Feel free to jump up and grab one if you don't have one. We are coming. Paul and Silas have been released from prison. And they have gone to basically a house church there in Thessalonica of a man named Jason. So, Acts 17. Um, also, there's lots of names of towns and people that I maybe am not so sure how to say, so I'm going to give it a go. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's creed, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica heard that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, Berea, whatever, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Arapagus or something, where they said to him, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. 
Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to find him. Though he, did not, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. People of God, this is the word of God. So I'm not sure what lifted for you there, but I want you to take a minute. There was a lot there. Maybe look back over it, or just take a minute and see what lifted. And if you have something, and if you're a note taker, I want you to write down what lifted for you. Or if you're not a note taker, maybe just turn to the person next to you and tell them what lifted. Now, really and sincerely, I would encourage you as a step for how to respond this week, ask God about that. Go back into this passage this week and ask him, why did that lift for me? And see what he says. Like I said, today I'm going to take us down the path of what lifted for me. And because I was asking the Lord what he had for us when I was doing this, I do think that there there is a word for us in this, not just me. Um, but the thing that lifted when I was reading this was the idea of agreements. And when I kind of worked that word out in my brain, I realized it really had to do with making decisions. So Paul is in these three different places. He goes to three different churches in essence. And he gives the same message. 
but they respond very differently to the decision that he lays in front of them. It's interesting that decision is what lifted for me because I'm also on a team right now of people who are um, getting ready to host a retreat here at 3rd at the end of June called The Next Right Thing. And it's based on this book by Emily P. Freeman. And it's called The Simple Soulful Practice for Making Life Decisions. Interesting. And as I was reading this, the Lord sort of zeroed in on something about decision-making for me, and I want to share that with you now. Sorry, I'm trying to decide how much of this is for you. Names mean things. They carry weight and importance and intimacy. To know a person's name is to know something of them. The world is not a nameless, faceless, green and blue mass of land and water. The world is made of people, rich with story, full of intrigue, longing for passion and love and adventure. Knowing people begins with knowing their name. In her book, Walking on Water, Madeline Engel says, our names are a part of our wholeness. To be given a name is an act of intimacy as powerful as any act of love. If naming can do all that, christen us into life and release new growth, is the opposite also true? Could allowing things to remain unnamed and unacknowledged hold life back? Naming is powerful when it comes to people, but it's also powerful for other things as well. Maybe a reason why a particular decision you are carrying today feels difficult is because there are things beneath the surface that remain unnamed within you, things you either haven't acknowledged or would rather ignore. Sometimes indecision is the result of a busy schedule or a hesitant personality. Other times it's because something within us remains unnamed and we simply don't have enough information or self-knowledge to move forward. Without a name, we can't be specific. And there's nothing fear likes more than non-specificity. We have an enemy who loves to cloud our minds over with generalities and a vague sense of anxiety. No wonder we can't make a decision. I believe what God wants this morning is for us to name fear in our life. Because fear keeps us from making decisions. Just like the people in each of these cities, Paul named the thing. And when he named it, it left ambiguity on the side of the road. And it made them decide something. Do you agree that Jesus is the Messiah? Or don't you? 
and all the implications with com that come with whether you agree with that statement or not. When he got to Athens, it seems like he asks a different question, but he actually doesn't. You see, it's, as he went to Thessalonica and to Berea, they had active Jewish communities there, and it, it's funny how it says, Paul went to the synagogue like he always did, and he talked about the Messiah being Jesus like he always did. Like, this had become his pattern. This is what he did. This is how God was leading him. Go here, go to the synagogue. Teach the Jews that they know who Messiah, they know the concept of Messiah, so take that, name Jesus as the Messiah. He gets to Athens, and he's like, oh, time out. There was a synagogue there, and he went there, but the text sort of gives this hint that, like, the way he'd always done things wasn't working. And as he stepped back and looked at all the idols that were there, as we were studying this, it actually said there were so many idol images in the streets of Athens that pedestrians had a hard time walking. Like someone even said, maybe there were more idols than people in that city. And his heart was troubled. And you'll notice that he left Berea and went to Athens and told uh, Silas and Timothy to just stay in Berea. Keep doing that. It's fine. I'll go ahead. I'll do what I've always done. I'll just go to the synagogue and start teaching, and you guys keep going here. It's good. But even before the people who had escorted him to Athens leave, he's like, time out. I need, I need, Paul, I need Silas and Timothy to come. This is not how it normally goes. We've got to have a different tactic here. And he calls for them to come. Well, while he's there, he sees this idol of the unknown God. And what does he do? He names it. People of Athens who live in fear of whether you're appeasing all these gods, you even have a God called the unknown God because because what if we forgot a God and then he would like have his wrath on us and we don't know what to do, so we'll just have this unnamed God. And Paul comes in and says, I can name that unknown God. It is the God of the universe. And now you must make a decision. When we name things, they can no longer be ambiguous. I was, I was talking with Tom. I don't know if you know, he works in some customer service stuff. And he was telling us that um, when you're working with uh, customer service people who work on the phone, it's really important for you to get the customer to use your name and then for you to use their name back. Because unless you have names, you're just kind of this faceless person who represents the company that's treating you badly or whatever. But as soon as you have a name for somebody, there's a connection there that makes you make a decision about how you're gonna act. So Paul names this unknown God for them, and it moves them to a point of needing to make a decision. Now for some of you here, you are in that spot. 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you know the God who is not unknown? Do you know the God who is near, who is able to be known by us? And that's a really important decision for you to make. For those of us who have already decided what we believe about that, I think we have a different decision to make, and that is, do we believe God has invited us to join him as co-laborers in bringing heaven to earth. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when we join with Jesus, he is inviting us. To take our next step into bringing heaven to earth. And the decision we have to make is, will we say yes? We will join you, Lord. We will follow where you're leading. Or, no, there's too much at stake. And I believe every time we take a step forward when we say yes and advance the kingdom, the enemy comes at us in a counterattack. So we have seen this in Acts this whole time, this attack, or this, I'll call it an advancing of the kingdom and then a counterattack from the enemy. And an advancing of the kingdom and a counterattack from the enemy. And whenever we say, yes, Lord, I will take the next step towards you, we can expect a counterattack from the enemy. And what I am naming this morning is that he often uses fear. When I go back to the text and I watch Paul, I think Paul has figured this out. Paul had every reason in the world to be afraid. Every time he sent him to a new city, there was new persecution. Every time he went somewhere else, he advanced the kingdom and there was a counterattack. He had every reason to be afraid. He had every reason to say, Lord, haven't I had enough? He had just got out of, the, of prison where he had been beaten and had no idea what was going to happen. Then he saw the kingdom come and he's, the miracle of the, of the walls falling down and his chains breaking. And he, he saw the conversion of the jailer and then the counterattack of the Jews. And can I just say, interesting that the Jews incited fear in the people of the town by rallying up all the ruffians. Guys, this is a movie. Do you see this part? Like they go round up all the usual suspects and they're like, guys, come on. You're the ones that everyone is afraid of. We're gonna go make everybody scared because too many people are agreeing with this crazy idea that Jesus was the Messiah. We killed him, we can't have that. Interesting how the enemy used fear. 
Paul doesn't even leave Thessalonica at that point. He stands in the face of fear waiting to know what his next step is. His next step sends him to Berea, where he's fully aware that the same thing could happen. And it does. Paul did not respond to the call to bring the kingdom to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth with fear, even though he had reason to. Can I say probably more reason than us? We have been invited to bring the kingdom. And my question this morning is, what are you afraid of? Because here's the thing that Paul knew that we must know. And that is we need to know who we are and who God is. Because when we know those two things, fear doesn't stand a chance. Like Paul said, whether I live or whether I die, who cares? It's all for Christ. Fear of death? I have no fear. When we know that our God has overcome the grave, the fear of death is not even holding, does not need to hold us back. So what are you afraid of? I want you to think of, maybe there's a decision in your life even right now that's difficult for you, or a situation that's difficult for you, and I want you to think about that decision. And I want you to ask yourself, what am I afraid of? What's the worst thing that could happen? Literally, what's the worst thing that could happen if you decide this or you decide this? Is it a fear of rejection? Is it a fear of failure? Is it a fear of death? A fear of change? Is it a fear of man, which would be like, are you afraid of what people would think? Are you afraid of being wrong? Are you afraid of being disappointed? You see, fear tells us two things. It tells us that we can't do the things that we might want to do for whatever reason. And it also tells us that we have to do the things that we don't want to do. And those are both lies. You see, all these things, rejection, failure, death, change, the fear of what people think or of being wrong, all those things really signal some sort of idol in our life. 
that we have given more power to than we believe God has power over. And when we name them as what they are, which is the enemy's tool of fear, we can take power and authority over it. My God is greater than my fear of rejection because he will not reject me. My God is bigger than the possibility that I might fail because he will not fail me. My God is bigger than sickness because he is the great healer. My God is greater than the change that I'm uncertain about because he is certain and he has told me he will never leave me. So no matter what new thing I need to walk into, he will be with me. I don't need to fear being alone. I don't need to fear being ridiculed or mocked because even if I am, I know what he believes about me. When we name fear, it loses its power and the kingdom advances. Do you know that the Bible tells us to fear not over 300 times? Some people say it's 365 times. Once for every day of the year, because the enemy uses fear so effectively against us. But when we know who we are and we know who God is, we can fear not. And friends, this is not, I don't want you to hear shame in the ways that you do experience fear because it's a real thing. But as I was thinking about this yesterday, the Lord gave me this really sweet picture. I was asking him, Lord, I understand that you want us to name fear and cut it off, that you want us to know our authority over it and who we are in you and who you are. I knew that's what he wanted us to know today. And I said, how do you want me to tell them? And he said, with so much love. And he gave me this picture. And you could pick any one of my four kids, and I think this happened with them. But I saw the picture of a parent, like, in the deep end of a swimming pool, treading water. And their, their little one coming down that diving board and wanting to jump in and saying, I'm afraid. And him saying, it's okay, you don't need to be afraid. Jump in, I'll catch you. And they scoot a little closer to the edge. Oh, but I'm scared. And the prince, you don't need to be scared, I will catch you. I promise I'll catch you. But what if you don't? I will. So I don't know what the Lord is calling you into in partnering with him to jump in. But here is what I'm certain of. He would not call you to jump if he was not certain he would catch you. Just like I would never tell one of my kids to jump off the deep end, into the deep end, if I wasn't certain I could catch them. So what are you afraid of? Fear not. 
I would not call you anywhere that I was not willing to catch you. The worship team can come on back up. Do you know that when you can take authority over fear, there's freedom on the other side? And there's not only freedom for you, there's freedom for all of the ways that God wants to bring his kingdom through you to the world. This year, we are talking about kingdom sending. And I want you to think about what's at stake if you're too scared to jump. He doesn't need us, but he invites us to join him to bring the kingdom. Would you stand and sing this next song as a declaration? Let it uh, fill your spirit with courage. <laughs>